Thank you very much, folks. Uh, my name is Paul English, and I'm uh, very privileged to be your host uh, of this evening's um, very special uh, BAFTA Guru Live event. Uh, with one or two faces here waiting in the wings, who you might know, without further ado, we shall invite them on now, the cast and director, ladies and gentlemen, of Still Game. What are you all doing back there? Keep going, I'm not on the stage yet. <laughs> <laughs> That's my seat. A nature. A nature. I'm over here. Oh, sorry, I'm not, I'm not started for you, Paul. I'm not sure. Oh, here, I've got my songs. That's quite all right. We've got off to a flyer. Um, first of all, I have to congratulate you all for your uh, success at uh, the Celtic Media Awards, ladies and gentlemen. I don't know if you know, but they won Best Comedy. <laughs> Who was on the odds that was up for it? <laughs> <laughs> Who took the gong? Did you go up? I did. I went yeah. to the Isle of Man and. and it's a bronze talk and a plenty. It's about five kilos, and the looks you get at the airport trying to smuggle it back through. What <laughs> the fuck's that? It is full of heroin, though, to be fair. Yeah, yeah, to be fair, yeah. <laughs> okay, foolish. so, ladies and gentlemen, for those of you who don't know, and I can imagine there are very, very few of you here, we have in our company now Paul Riley, Ford Kiernan, Sanjeev Kohli, Mark Cox, Jane McCarry, and, and Gavin Mitchell, and, and, and director uh, Michael Hines. Um, I'm going to start with you, Ford. Oh, actually, first of all, we should say there is one notable omission. Um, Greg Kempel's not here. Who sadly uh, passed away at half past. A horrible, uh, a horrible uh, bus accident. <laughs> um, <laughs> people were laughing until they realised, oh, fuck, it's, he's actually dead. <laughs> I had a line as well there, Ford. I was, you know, I was thinking maybe, there? you know, Victor McDade had headed up to Craig Lang to find out who'd voted Tory. Ah. No Tory councillors in Craig Lang. Okay, no. yeah. <laughs> uh, um, Ford, let me start with you. Uh, given that this is a, a, an industry event and we are talking uh, to and uh, hopefully for people who are uh, hopeful of breaking into the industry, tell us about the moment where the, the, the very germ, if you like, of Still Game taking, uh, taking shape. Uh, well, Greg, Greg and I had been skint, I mean super skint, and uh, we had been writing sketches for the BBC, as a lot of people were. Um, and we were pratted, and we had a spare room with a, a, a typewriter in it. Um, we'd been working on the concrete slabs before and chisels, um, and then we got, a, <laughs> we, got, we got a type very slow that. Uh, but whenever we got the, we got the typewriter, and we, we said, "Look, let's try and get the Edinburgh Festival." Now, I had been doing stand-up before, and so had Greg. Um, so we asked Karen Corin at uh, Edinburgh, would she give us a space to put a play on if we wrote a play? And she went, "Absolutely." So at the Gildy Balloon 2 is where we put up Still Game, the play. I mean, it was as rough as get out, a lot of swearing in it. Uh, available on YouTube. Um, <laughs> it's, honestly, it's, the swearing's absolutely choice <laughs> in it. And myself and Paul and Greg were in that. So that, uh, the, the, so the germ of the idea was that Greg was telling these stories about his, his grandfather, Sammy, uh, who seemed to be the same type of character as my uncle Barney was. Dry, witted, black humoured, and... Uh, that's what gave us the idea, let's write a play, and, that, and, that, and that's how the, the first two characters were born. And from then, tell us a bit more about how it, it took and sort of changed shape, because it, it was, am I right in saying it did feature 
in Chewing the Fat, those two characters featured in Chewing the Fat. Well, they did because eventually, you know, obviously they were, they were you know, trying to write more for radio and stuff, and then um, they were coming up with different ideas with different characters in it, and they gave us Chewing the Fat as a radio show, and um, we just naturally put the two old guys in there as well. As well, we did these Jewish American filmmakers and loads of different characters, and some took, some didn't take, but we were always most comfortable playing. Jack and Victor. So when it came time for us to uh, make a pitch for a, a sitcom, uh, then we thought the best idea would to do the ones that we were more comfortable with, and that was Jack and Victor. Were there any other contenders for the sitcom? And there was. I, there was a character I used to play called Ronald Villiers, who was a terrible actor. But there was nothing, Greg, there was, but there was no other person that played off of Ronald. It was always just a director or somebody in the sketches. No, it had to be the old men always, because we, we just bounced off each other so easily then. When you're pitching that idea then to the bosses at BBC Scotland as it was, what, what, tell us a bit about the process of that. Because oh, you've well got the, oh, that's easy, because what we did was we, we'd, we'd done four uh, series of Two and the Fat, and we said to BBC, look, uh, we'd like to do a sitcom. And they went, ha, <laughs> like that. Um, it's, <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's like a, a small pamphlet. Aye. <laughs> <laughs> That's a difficult thing to do. You, you, you know, it's a, I know it looks easy enough, but you can't do that. They said, just, just stick to that sketch thing that you, that you do. <laughs> and we went, no, please, please go and let us. And, and they went, oh, right, okay. So they let us do a pilot. And that pilot lay there for a year before they commissioned it as a series. Um, the process is mental. And it's different every time. I mean, our process is, you know, obviously that's what happened with our process. But, you know, different sitcoms happen in different ways. That just happened by the way ours worked. And as it's sitting there, while it's kind of, you know, and, you know the, the, on the back burner, is it uh, do, you, do you think at that point it's dead, it's not going to happen? Or? Well, I suppose persistence is the thing. Um, my wife was recently in for a hip operation, and the, the woman at the hospital, she wouldn't go private. Um, she wanted to, she said, pay my stamp, I, I want to get my thing on the, on the National Health. <laughs> and uh, the, woman in the, the woman in the hospital said to her, look, persistence is the key here. It could be 16 weeks, it could be six weeks. Phone them up every day and their dog's sick of listening to you. And right enough, um, she just kept phoning and being nice as nightmares and the lassie eventually folded me and went, fuck it, shove her up the list. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's how the BBC works. Oh, it's me again. Or you can go, what's the name? Thing me's uncle. <laughs> just every day, remind them that you're there so that there's a note kicking about. <laughs> when, you, when you're actually, I, I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about that moment. Trying to actually I get my head done, I know I was the up for once. <laughs> <laughs> trying to isolate that moment where, where, where you and Greg are, are talking about the possibility of spinning off from, from these characters. Who's, who came up with it? Can you remember? Who, who said, these are the guys we should go for? Was it you or him? Oh, no, it was a, com a completely mutual thing. As I said, it was about comfortability and, and uh, you know, it's just... Yeah. It's the two characters that are most likely to be able to ad-lib, because the ad-libbing is where the writing comes from. You'll be sitting talking about something in the house, and you'll rattle on about something, and we immediately become Jack and Victor, and an element of that will end up on the paper. So that's, I don't think we, we went, you know, went through it, no, that's no one, that's no one. It was always going to be Jack and Victor, always, because that's, when we're talking to one another, we end up being Jack and Victor, whenever, wherever we are. Looking at stuff, oh, look at that big Christ, eh? <laughs> you know what I mean? And it just kind of builds out of that, and you end up saying, right, that's a keeper, that's a keeper. It just happens like that. There might be some people here who are familiar with the frustrations involved in the pitching process at, at whatever level. You're seven or eight series on now. Yeah. Is it still frustrating? Oh, aye, because they, they had a new guy, uh, not Mark, 
at uh, the BBC, and he had just got this new job, and he was going to be the head of comedy. And well, I always said his name. I'm going to ask him up every other place. <laughs> um, but he came in, and I went in with four different ideas. I went in with a drama. Um, I went in with a game show. I, I, I wasn't going to get out of there without getting something. And I put the four... I don't mind saying myself, fairly solid ideas done. Uh, one, was, one was young Fagan telling the story, and this was the drama of Fagan when he was only nine or ten, when he came from Ireland and went to London and meeting everybody at a younger age, you see. Uh, but anyway, I laid all that, all the shit, and the, the put it on That's a goer, that's exactly what we're looking for. This is out of the park fantastic. This, I super love, I can't wait to show this to my life. Fuck all. <laughs> <laughs> Two weeks went back, nothing. So that's, that's how frustrating it can be. And I've, you know, and sometimes you'll do that and then sit on it and that guy gets, gets the sack after a few weeks and then you just change the date on it and go back in and punch it to the next guy. <laughs> Can I tell my Ken story? Absolutely. So what happened was I had a, a script at the BBC that was hovering over a bin and I had David Heyman, uh, who said to me, I'll do it for nothing. Uh, and uh, she said, we can't make it, it's just unmakeable. And I was like, Ken Stott's the other character. And she went, if you get Ken Stott, we'll make this. And I went, right, okay. So I went to try and get Ken Stott and then... Um, I phoned the agent and they said, don't even come near us, don't even entertain us. And, and she said, in any case, he's in America doing God of Carnage. I thought it was a movie, so I googled God of Carnage. God of Carnage is on Broadway. I jump on the plane with a script and a single malt and I fly to Broadway. <laughs> and I stand, this is how crazy it gets. I stand outside the stage door, waiting for Ken Scott, on the off chance that he's seen Still Game. And it's, <laughs> uh, it's minus uh, eight, it's December. And he pulls up in this van and he's, he's on the phone. And I wait till him, he comes off the phone. And uh, I say, excuse me, Kenny goes, yes! <laughs> 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 I said, um, have, have, you, have you seen Still Game? And he went, oh, fuck, it's you. And he's in massive letters on Broadway, right, right behind me. And um, I, I said, look, I've got a script here. Um, I wonder if you would take a look at it. And he went, you, why? He said, did you come from Glasgow? For, I said, aye. I said, I just think you'll like it. I said, David Heyman's the other guy, and we want you to play this guy. And um, he went, yes, I'll look at it. He says, um, and then I'll never forget this, New Year's Eve, he calls me back, Paul, it's Ken. <laughs> I lost the script. <laughs> I, was in the, I was in the chemist, and I think I left it on the chemist desk. I have lost it. I said, that's okay. I said, you got final draft? Yes, I've got final draft. You didn't have final draft, right? And um, so another week goes by. And I'm trying to get him to actually, you know, commit to this idea, which he's only read half of. And I thought, no, this is getting sour. So I jump, and I'm not even kidding you, jump back on the plane, go back, and send him a text message. I said, there's a fat guy on Broadway waiting with a script. Will you ever fucking read it? And he goes, oh, my God, have you done this again? So I went again. And it was a Sunday. And he said, right, you need to come and see the show. I know, I know. You need to come and see the show. I said, I went to see the show. Fucking brilliant. And um, he said, I can't read this till Wednesday because my son's in town. And I went, that's absolutely fine. And then he phoned me on his day off, which was obviously the Monday in body. And he said, meet me in that pub we met in yesterday. And I said, okay. So I went and met him. And he says, this is very fucking good. Right, that's what he said. So I've got, now I've got David Heyman and Ken Stop. Go back to the BBC. <sighs> we don't have the money to make that. <laughs> there you go. That's it, everyone's out. <clears throat> so there you go. Heading out the door, they're all... But, 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 that all sounds terrible. Uh, and it is. Five grand, it cost me! I know, I know. Yeah. It's like, I've got John Wayne! <laughs> <That's right. laughs> but there are other times where you'll have like four or five things or just two things in. 
we're out of the blue when you've you know completely lost patience with the entire thing, that the phone will go and they'll say, come in and we'll have a chat about it. And a couple of the people in the department will get excited about it. So it's, it's no all grim. I mean, Greg and I and my wife and his wife were going on holiday to Falaraki, the biggest fucking mistake I ever made in my life. <laughs> there was people shagged in the streets. Or <laughs> the top of cars, right? And I mean, apart from us, <laughs> apart from us, but just as we were just about, we were calling the flight, the phone does up and said, you've got the television show tune of that, and we had no idea that we were going to phone us, because at that point we were just radio. So you kind of get disheartened or think that the whole thing's, are, you know, obviously there's disappointments involved, but if you, if you go at it, um, you know, you can get there. Sanjay will tell you, man, it's it just, it, sometimes it's sickening, but... Yeah, I mean, what happens is, and this happens a lot, is that you'll build a relationship with a producer and, uh, and they'll get shipped on. It'll be maternity leave, it will be something. Um, but you've made a relationship with another producer. So the, the more of those you can make, because you never know where they're going to end up. And the, I mean, I always akin it to, you know, if you're an asylum seeker and you're, you're clinging to the bottom of an airplane, just cling on as long as you can till you land. Because by the time you land, you'll have made all these relationships and you don't know where they're going to be. But um, it is important. I mean, it's persistence. Who? 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 I'll come back to the word persistence. Are you just friendly guys table tennis? <laughs> well, no, I think it's important that, you know, I use that analogy because I think it's important. I think it's important there should be Asians in sitcoms. <laughs> oh, where is he? Where the fuck is he? <laughs> He's hanging underneath a plane. No, but what is, what is weird is, is that a script that, that you know is good, uh, it, it, it changes, it's like the same guy can read it twice and you'll, you'll not like it or you will like it. It is random. You just have to keep the faith in what you've done. Because, um, I mean, anyone that writes, will, they'll, they'll be the same. Once you've just written a script and then you read it the next day, you think, oh, Christ, that's awful. But if you take it out of the drawer six months later, you think, actually, it's that good, it, it kind of feels like I didn't write it. So um, you have to sort of hold on to that, that faith, uh, and, and just, you know, trust in your own taste because... This is incredibly random. And sometimes you're going into meetings with people that you know aren't as talented as you. But you have to wear it because they're the guys with the money. And you have to, you know, they come up with utter stupid fucking credulous notes and you have to take them on board. Yeah. Not all of them, but that, I mean, that, that again comes with being persistent. If you, if you stay in the game long enough, you do sort of build up a, 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 a kind of like critical mass. But I mean, Victoria Wood talked about this. She said that she was in a room um, with, with a script editor who's 25 years old that's giving her notes. And she said, I was just, I just wanted to say to her, look, I'm Victoria Wood, I'm not accepting this, mm. but th that's just the way it is sometimes. You just, um, like I say, if you can just, the whole thing is about personal relationships when it comes to it. And if you can uh, impress enough producers, then eventually one of them will be in a position to, to give you the work. I think it's worth noting that when you go through the commissioning process, particularly also in game shows and factual stuff, uh, commissioners are risk averse. And someone explained it to me, he said, so they should be. They wanted to commission something that's an absolute banker for them. They never ever want to take something that might have a risk because they'll lose their job over it, blah, 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 blah. So you need to be able to say to that commissioner, never say to them, take a risk on this, take a punt on it, because they won't commission it. They want to be able to say, this is a surefire hit, I guarantee you'll get viewers for this. 
and there is no danger in you taking on this on board. And it took me ages when I was pitching other stuff for other projects to people and saying, oh, he's totally risk averse. And they were saying, yeah, well, so he should be. Commissioners shouldn't be risk averse. They, should, they only want to be uh, bankers. They only want to make sure they make hits. And that's worth remembering when you take stuff. Never say, take a chance on this. They won't. They won't ever take a chance on something. Michael, I wanted to ask you, um, I'm going to ask you all, in fact, uh, but specifically yourself, first of all. Tell us a bit about your route into uh, the industry, uh, your first gig, if you like. Uh, into the industry or into getting to work with these guys? Into the industry. Into the industry. So I uh, used to do a lot of radio stuff. And uh, for a while, Radio 5 had a, a Tuesday night slot that came out of Scotland. It came out the different different night, all the rest of it, called the Earshot. And I worked on that for a while and met some people and go back to Sanjay's point about building relationships. And at the time, in fact, your brother, Hardeep, and my pal Hamish were on a trainee course for producers. And they were looking in education in Edinburgh for someone to write and direct five stories for kids about bullying going from primary to secondary school. Um, one of the producers had heard of me and was working on the radio show and said, oh, let's have a chat. And I used to work a lot in theatre, youth theatre, you know, doing stuff with kids. And um, so I went into BBC Edinburgh and wrote five stories about getting bullied and blah, blah, blah. And, and they said, OK, you can direct it. And that actual guy took a complete punt because I didn't know one end of the camera from another. I thought I'd never directed anything. Well, you've uh, seen the first series, haven't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, especially the first step. Anyway, um, so uh, I went straight in as that, straight in as a director. No film school training, no nothing whatsoever. Went straight in as that, learnt on the job and stayed in education for a couple of years. And then BBC Children, some of you will remember 50-50 when you were younger, those kind of shows. Uh, BBC Children's in Glasgow brought me over and taught me how to multi-camera direct. And so I started doing the Saturday morning kids shows, fully booked, FBI, 50-50. And the designer on 50-50, Graham Rose, worked with these guys on Chewing the Fat and mentioned me to the comedy unit and said, Chewing the Fat, when it goes network, you should get this guy, Michael, in. He does a lot of stuff for the network as opposed to just Scotland. So you were recommended to him? Yeah, and so I came in. I remember sitting down talking to you guys about it, and they were like, what the fuck's this nasally scouse twat uh, <laughs> sitting chatting to us? And um, so I did the last series of Chewing the Fat and then all the Hogmanay specials and Christmas specials. And then Colin Gilbert directed the first step of Still Game. And he said, oh, <laughs> and he said uh, we've got it as a series. We want Colin's here with us. Yeah. <laughs> He's in rows four, Ooh. five, and six. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so he said we wanted to do it, and actually it was a different pub. It was the two ways, I think, was it? The, uh, the original one, Billy McElhenney, who yeah. started off, or something like that. And I said I want to reshoot all the bar scenes in it uh, and, and bring Gab in and do other stuff with it and reshoot half the pilot. So that's the only bit of still game I've not done is half the first step. Okay. Uh, and that was it. Um, if you, I mean, I realise, but you know, one question and an answer from from all of you could probably eat up all of the time. So, if there's a way that we can address this one uh, quickly, could you tell us about your first gig, the first moment where you were actually getting paid work in this industry? Um, am I allowed to mention Cumbernauld because I got chinned for it the other time? Mention Cumbernauld if you like. Um, the um, <laughs> the first gig I got on television was a student in garage in Taggart. Didn't even have a name, the character. <laughs> and uh, I was a snitch, and uh, I'd, I'd stuck somebody in and then ran away. But that was it. Why that are you not allowed to mention Cumbernauld? Because it's a theatre job, and they, they were all upset with me. They were all getting up at with me. It's ridiculous. Let's move on. Four. Exactly. Uh, there's a comedian called uh, Bruce Martin who was in the Hydro show with us there. And, uh, Bruce and I and uh, Stu Hughes, another uh, Jenny McCrindle and all these, we worked in an office together. And 
Bruce was already getting quite established on the comedy circuit and he said to me, why don't you come down to the Black Flat Friars Club in the basement there and, and, and do five minutes? I went, five minutes of what? He went, just, just talk for five minutes and come up with something. And I went, no, I, I would be too shy to do that. He says, well, hide behind a character. And I said, right, okay. So I went as a junkie. Um, <laughs> as a junkie. Um, and I, I went, went as a junkie and I did this, this completely rocket man, just pointing to people, talking to them like and uh, I got maybe five minutes, and the following week I did it again, and the following week I did it again. Within about six weeks, they offered me the compers job. So I was stuck in this character for about six weeks, and then I started to drop it bit by bit, and within a, a few months I had an hour's worth of stuff, but that was the very first place. In fact, Greg started the week after me in the same club, and we both still have the yellow receipts uh, for a tenner each. That's what they were paying as a tenner each. Did that, um, did that character ever come back again? Did we ever the see kinda, it? It kind of did. Greg and I liked to... The kind of wasted types, and we we, we kind of took them. They, they became these guys, and the, um, the news for Neds. News for Neds. News for Neds. News for Neds. 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 We always liked to glass. That's what kept us particularly glass region. I think that's what held us back, you know, to, to some degree, because <coughs> the, the, the network were kind of going. I mean, what the fuck are they talking about? Them sweaty socks, you know. They didn't they did, didn't quite get what we were doing. So I think that's what kept the Scottish. But and the reverse side of that is it happened for us in Scotland. So. I'm not complaining either way. That's as brief as I can make it. <laughs> Sanj? Well, I, I had no intention of being in the media at all, but I got a, a phone call from a producer mate of mine who was looking for new radio presenting talent. And she asked me to audition for it, and I did, and I got the job, and then I'm presenting a live radio show, which is, wasn't a comedy show, it was like a magazine show that nobody listened to. Sunday was it nights. Radio Scotland? Radio Scotland. What was it called? It's called Ghetto Blasting. That dates it slightly, doesn't it? <laughs> I think they'll get away with that yeah, now. Uh, I know, I know. I know. No, 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 the idea was it was a multicultural magazine show, a blasting at the ghetto. I know it's not as camp as that. I don't know why I went to camp. I don't know why. Uh, but what it meant was that was, I was presenting a live radio show, doing interviews uh, with one-on-one interviews, doing discussions about Bosnia. And um, I know, but, but, but then it was, because it was a mix of styles, I could write funny links for myself, because like I say, no one was listening, and um, just amuse myself and the guys in the booth, I would <laughs> write funny links. And then that got noticed in Radio Scotland, and then I got asked to uh, write for a football sketch show, Off the Ball, as it was then. And that's where I, I met Greg, and then through Greg I met Ford, and then that led to me writing for Chewing the Fat. Um, in fact, I produced, remember the early radio shows? Oh. I say produced, I sat there with a stopwatch, they were just doing all the work. Um, uh, but, but I was writing for Tune the Fat, then I wrote for Goodness Gracious Me, I don't know if you remember the Asian sketch show, so um, I was basically playing any kind of minority trade I could. Uh, and um, then through the writing, really, uh, I was then writing a sketch show that I was in for cheapness. So then I'm acting, although it wasn't really acting, I was shouting in wigs. Um, but then that led to Still Game, really, which was... That's the book, isn't it? Shouting in wigs. <laughs> <laughs> My life in the theatre. Uh, but, but, but the weird thing was, was that unlike all these guys, I'd never done any live work, no, no theatre work, no stage work. I mean, the first time I was on a stage was the Hydro in Hydro, 2014. Right. So um, I'd sort of like managed to kind of become a performer almost by accident, like a reluctant performer. Um, but obviously Naveed is the mm -hmm. little breakout mm -hmm. character, and I've got Ford and Greg to thank for that. Um, I can't remember if it was you, and I'd, I'd be meaning to ask you, I can't remember if it was you or Greg that said that you liked when I first dated my dad. Aye. Aye, you just quite like that. Aye, that, it's a combination of the guy in the shop around the corner. Aye. It was like, you know, fucking totally no danger, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because when we were writing for him, you know, we're, we're doing Hof Glesga the whole time, we're writing. 
Yeah. You actually know his Asian as me. I would quite like Mark to tell the story about the curly whirly. <laughs> is this something we can? Uh, we, is this for? Oh, is no, this is suitable for? Oh, completely, completely. There was an Asian shopkeeper next to me. Used to live in Queens Drive. Uh, bunches, and there was an Asian shopkeeper. Uh, we used to. Paul lived across the road as well, and we used to go in all the time. He was dead crabbit. You know, he was just dead crabbit. His boys all about. He was, he was dead crabbit, and he would go in. And he would say, "Raj, what about um, a twenty silk cut and uh, crisps and ginger?" And, to, and one time I went in, I was in the mood for. I said, Raj, uh, you, <laughs> <laughs> you any curly whirlies? <laughs> he never even looked up. He went, no. I went, well, how no? Too long for shelf. Crab it, Raj. <laughs> um, Gavin, tell us about your start. 1929, Walt Disney, <laughs> Steamboat Willie, black and white, silent film, Paul. Next. <laughs> uh, uh, Theatre, mainly, and then into, I think the first thing I did was My Dead Dad at STV Studios in front of a live audience, which was a bit of a, a baptism of fire. And then um, first drama was uh, Taking Over the Asylum, I think, with Ken Stott, fairly enough, uh. <laughs> and David Tennant, uh, so I, and then oh, it yeah. just... Sorry? <laughs> Never heard him again. Oh, okay. He was shite. Uh, so I, uh, that was my start, really. Uh, and then we met 1996, Jane, Ford, Greg, and I. 95, I think we did it. Was it 95? Uh, Velvet Soup. No Velvet oh, Soup. Oh, my pulp, pulp, pulp video. Pulp video. That was when we first met. Uh, it was I? rotten. It was red rotten. <laughs> and the BBC paid a fortune on it. And I, I remember they do this analysis, you know, how much does it cost them per head? Each viewer that's watching, and I think, I can't remember exactly, but it should be about one penny a head or something, is what it should cost to. This was costing half a quid a head. There's so little people watching it. It was utter tripe, wasn't it? We were up against friends at the, the height of friends as well. We had no chance. <laughs> Apart from the fact it was rotten. Aye, and it, it was rotten. rotten. Aye. Uh, but I, I actually remember it. Quite, quite fondly, yeah. yeah. I had moments. And also, well, that's what the first three sketches of the old guys appeared. Yeah, yeah. we did the old guys in that. We had to beg to get them in, but we got them in. We done yeah. them live in front of the audience. And that's when we found out Ad Libbin, is it? I think the first thing, a guy, Alan Tyler, who's went on to great things, yeah. uh, used to be this uh, warm-up guy then, and we found we were doing our first live sketches, the three old guys, and I was wincing in those days. And we sat... And it, we, that's when we realised we could add lib. We were waiting on lights being set up and yeah. stuff when we ripped the piss at Alan Tyler. Yeah. Funnily enough, he's never employed us. <laughs> <laughs> Mark, tell us about your, uh, your start. Well, it's when I left drama college and uh, did bits and uh, uh, different things. We were, what were we in? I was just thinking about there. I played the young Alexander Graham Bell in a kid's thing. You remember that? And you played my grandfather. Do you remember that? <laughs> Aye. <laughs> Ah, I'm getting a big moustache and all that. Oh, no, that was a kids' programme. Kids' programme for Channel 4, did that. F.O.T., well done. F.O.T. I did the Parahandy, the remake, the Gregor Fisher, and then obviously Chewing the Fat, Paul and I, and stuff like that. And I did the old men singing at points as well. Remember we did that, the songs were very popular. And the short-lived bit on the Beach Grove Gardens, you remember that? 
Bill Torrance at the time, it never worked, it worked for three years. The idea was that I was to lighten it up, he would keep it burnt in Aberdeen, he would do a bit, he would turn to me and he would say, he would say, Mark's corner, it was called, Mark! It was always the same answer, just I had to say the same answer, but I didn't think it was right. He would say, Mark, how were those carrots you planted? And I would have to turn and go, Bill, they're fucked. <laughs> carrots, carrots, turnips and tatties, and that was it. They pound it. So that was that. Then I did tuna fat and various things. And then, uh, obviously, we went into still game, and it was, it's, it was great, you know, and it's been, uh, and obviously, out with. <laughs> Do you know I don't think that sounds like I think we'll be seeing that soon. <laughs> uh, Jane, tell us about your your, uh, your first steps. Uh, the first well, it was a theatre job and it was at the Tron, so that was fine. And uh, then one of the first tellies that I did, it was with Ricky Fulton. Do you all know Ricky Fulton? Jimmy Logan, Ricky Fulton. And I didn't know that they actually hated each other, right? So I was trying to make conversation. It was terrible. It was so embarrassing. And it was set in a dentist surgery. I was the nurse and it said quite clearly in the script that the dental nurse would take a mask, hold it over Ricky Fulton's face and turn on the gas. That's what it said. Was into that. <laughs> <laughs> so Jimmy Logan was the dentist and I did as I was bid, but it was real gas because it was a real dentist surgery. So he started to struggle, but I thought he was just doing the act. So I, <laughs> I held him down. And Jimmy Logan looked me in the eye and he <laughs> held him down. <laughs> and the gas full on. Now he'd been in his 70s then. And he sat up and he threw up, right? Now we were filming at night. It was one of my first jobs. And he'd be taken into a room and all cleaned. And it was a whole big, that was Colin Gilbert. It was a whole big hoo-ha. I was giving into trouble. But I was like, what did it say? Turn on the gas and hold it over his face. And I never forget Jimmy Logan sitting like that in the corner. <laughs> <laughs> And I remember going home, I was crying, and I told my mum and dad, and I went, that'll be me, I'll never get another job again. But then I did with him, and it was fine. <laughs> you need to watch her, though, don't you? Fair, we used to do gas nights. <laughs> <laughs> gas nights. Well, just talking about gas nights, because they all know what I'm like, and I'm the only one up part all the time, every day, we're filming part non-stop. And my mum, oh. <laughs> my mum said to me the other day, she went, what's that? And what's that? Is Robert said to my husband, we're going to a fitness class. And I said, it was body pump. And it was all these people. There <laughs> <laughs> was people all in the kids' pumps and all that. Went in. And my mum went, you're always pumping. She pumps all the time. She loves pumping. And then she went to Robert. And I'm like, sure, she loves pumping. And like that. No, no, no. Um, yeah, I don't know how to follow that. Um, <laughs> uh, tell us about your pumping, Jim. Um, some of you are trained. Some of you have been through acting school. Why don't they guess and, who's and trained? So and yeah, well, that's maybe an idea. <laughs> Let's just start at the front and work our way down. Um, and some of you aren't. So, I mean, uh, uh, to what extent is that uh, relevant? Has it been an impediment? Has not been trained? Some people say that not having the, the sharp edges, you know, uh, shaved off you through drama school or, or, or you know, or learning your technique. I mean, I'd imagine given that some of you have been through that and some of you haven't, you probably have different points of view. Gavin, you, you went to drama school, tell us. No, I didn't. Did you not? No, I'm untrained. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. Nope. back. That's why I'm shite. Yeah, okay. <laughs> um, no. 
No, I'm on to, I think, think things have changed since my day, uh, but I think it's horses for courses, really. I mean, I think obviously there's stuff to be learned there and others can speak for that. I didn't. I kind of, uh, originally I, was a, I did various things. I was an artist and a scene painter. And through that, became an extra at the Citizens and learned on the job for about four or five years at the Sits. Um, and in those days, you needed an equity card. So things had changed since then that anybody can do it, really. Uh, so, so it was kind of learning on the job a wee bit. Um, personally, I would think, I think things have changed a lot in drama school, just because like any kind of education, and again, it's, it's people with money that will get into it, unfortunately. And not enough kind of working class people and talent, I think, is looked over nowadays. It's funny, so, Gavin, that you should say that because I was, um, I went to the academy up the road, whatever it's called, now, the RCS, and um, when I, 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 my drama teacher at school said to me, you need to go to Glasgow Schools Youth Theatre where I met Coxie, and she said, I've got you an addition time, and I never went. Um, and she, she found out, and she went ballistic, and so she got me another one, and then I went. And you, you know, one of those things where you think back, so I wonder what happened if I'd never done that. So I end up at drama school, and um, in those days, uh, it was a bursary you got. Uh, it, it was f essentially it was free money, right? <laughs> <laughs> and you know, and so you didn't have to pay it back and, until the very last uh, year of my third year, the last bit they brought in student loans, and that was the only bit I had to pay back. Um, and so the rest of the time was just spent having a fucking laugh. Drama schools, <laughs> honestly, it's fucking useless. It's useless. Just date, date, date yourself, and I. And I I always maintain I'm serious. That's <laughs> <laughs> like, like a guy turning up your house and painting, decorating, no fucking bother. All the clothes. There you go. Well, bucket. Point proved, though. You were trained, right? No. You were trained. Gavin was trained. I, I was there for three I, years. I, if I may. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, we're kind of actually quite, I, I, quite I, I, neatly split here, aren't I, 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 I quite liked it. I, I think... No, but that's the party in aspect. Oh, no, no, Forget no, about no, the no, no, no. I, I like learning about different things as well, and I like the partying a lot. <laughs> but <laughs> I, think, I think naturally, though, you've heard the canny polish a turd, etc. <laughs> I was at drama college where, with one individual, a, 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 a girl. God, she tied harder than anybody. No, 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 no. She never, but she could, it just wasn't, she just, it wasn't there. It wasn't it. rotten, but. <laughs> I think you've either, you know, funny-wise, like, you never went to college, but, you know, funny's funny. Natural's natural, and I think in the right environment, when everything comes together, like this, probably, and everybody in it, I think it's, you know, it's. Well, the thing is, I didn't know, that, but I learned my craft watching the young ones. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm watching Kenny exactly. Everett because exactly. I didn't know I was going to do this. So I, in a lot of ways, you, I think it is changing now because you didn't get any tele training, did you, when you guys were at college? Mm. No, I think you nothing. do now. No, no you don't. But no, that's true. No, no you, you do, but you have you to pay through the nose for it. That's yeah. the yeah. point that Gavin made. It's fascinating because I can't tell whether someone's been trained or not when they come on, and we've had hundreds of actors on Steel Game. But I remember when Paul Young, who played Shug, came on the first day and he hit his mark and he turned around and he understood eye lines and all that, and I was like, pay attention. <laughs> um, and, and you could tell he'd been trained, but he'd, he'd done a lot of TV before. It wasn't the training, it's the fact that he'd done TV. And the biggest problem is, I find, with young actors coming out now is they can act or, you know, whatever, but they don't know how to be directed and they don't know TV craft. They no. don't know how to hit a mark, and then, hit an eyeline, shot size, performance level, all that kind of, of stuff. Of course, conversely, I don't know if you guys know this, but the guy in the last series who played my brother yeah. uh, is a criminal lawyer. Never done any acting in his life apart from He's the a gay and uh, what's the chances of that? And the guy's brilliant, isn't it? Mm. Absolutely brilliant. And he showed up 
and it was, wasn't it? It was yeah, absolutely it was, amazing. It was fantastic. And, and what's interesting is, is the biggest thing you'll notice uh, when I'm auditioning people, they'll say, oh, I've not done any TV. And in the old days, it used to matter a little bit, or oh, you're not in equity, or I've done a lot of theatre. As long as the performance level is appropriate and right, the, and with the advent of easier technology like your iPhones and stuff, people can be on a screen somewhere easier. But people generally, the biggest thing is, and Paul's right, you have to pay for it, they don't know how to, to operate on a TV set. That's where the training lacks, not, and, and Cox is quite right. Funny's funny, and the, and the biggest problem we have sometimes is getting a straight actor on a comedy set who's terrible because they can't do comedy. And also, as, as that thing, it's experience. Ultimately, like any job and how you yeah. learn about it, you know, and a lot of time, if you're 16 and you're going into drama school and you're, you're doing a Jacobean tragedy where you've raped your sister and then killed her, you've not, you've not got much experience in it. <laughs> Whereas when you're about 34... No. <laughs> um, you, know, uh, you know, a lot of it is learning the job and being out there and who you meet and how things work and it being hands-on. You know, if you're going into a class and it's all quite theoretical, it's quite abstract, I think at times, you know, and, and it is about experience, to act as experience, and I think, and life experience, and if you're, you're not necessarily getting that, apart from partying. That's a bother, <laughs> that's a bother as well. I think a lot, you see a lot of television and, uh, television and uh, film schools opening up, oh, and it's been, it's been the person that's running the course is so-and-so, so-and-so, and they haven't kicked a ball. They haven't done any of themselves, uh -huh. yeah. but they've got a big room and they're renting out a room. And they're charging you £450 a quarter to come and learn how to speak in TV, mm. you know, how to read scripts. And that, that, that's the problem, you know. It's people with experience to go and give it to others that we have experience. But I suppose going on these courses opens doors to people, uh, but then, you know, quite a lot of the, the, the stories that you hear, not just with yourselves, but with other, other kind of uh, ensembles, if you like, is that, you know, someone knew someone and people had relationships before the thing that's actually right. came to pass. How important is that? Relationships with people in, in so like you guys, some, some of you knew each other before. Well, before we were you got just we were just on the same scene. I mean, a lot yeah. of us cut our teeth writing tiny wee sketches for t you know in a, a cramped writers room for for radio, mm. and that's how we got to know one another because you'd be sitting, you know, sort of pitching things to each other. This is what they want, and then a guy used to come in, Benio Clark would come in, and write, um, "Mobile phones are funny." And then they'd leave the room, <laughs> not, not having said anything. And we're all going, because they were just out at the time, mobile phones. Went, ah, how is that funny? And then somebody would go quiet and start going, trying to look at what have you won, what have you got at that? I think it's, it's absorption about the thing. I don't, it doesn't matter whether you're trained or no trained. I think if you're in the company of people and you're, you're actually listening to what's happening. And I do still think that drama, although I didn't do drama, is important because. Uh, improv is the king. If you can, you know, get bunches of kids who wouldn't normally be improvising with one another, that's what brings you out yourself. Where you can run off at the mouth and there's nobody stopping you doing it. And that's where you, you, you grow as a, an actor, I think. I, the, the one thing I would say about drama school is that after like two weeks, right, you're there for three years, after two weeks, every inhibition you have is gone. You're just like, that's absolutely fine. You date anything, do you know what I mean? And that's a life skill that you carry yeah. through. Yep. And then, then you leave. Mm. Oh, totally, aye, totally. But then you leave drama school and then reality bites because, for example, uh, I met Greg. Uh, uh, we did a profit share tour of the Highlands. This is absolutely true. <laughs> right? This is the first experience was with Greg. And we did a profit share tour of the Highlands, which is a really bad idea because primarily there's nobody in the Highlands, <laughs> right? <laughs> there's nobody there. And then. Um, 
we were, get, we were getting like a fiver, maybe a, a, on a good night, a fiver a night. And then one time I was in hock to the company because I tapped them. So I got a quid. This, is, this ended up in still game. I got a quid. That was my wage for the night. And I put it in the poggy. And it's in still game. I put it in the poggy and I didn't even get a hold, right? <laughs> and I was like, that's rock bottom right there. And that was like six months out of drama school. So that's the kind of, you know, the, the difference, you know? The thing about the relationships, though, if I hadn't worked with the designer, Graham, I wouldn't be sat here now. Yeah. Uh, what's also interesting is, is uh, we got on, and so you continue to be there. There were other directors on Tune the Fat who didn't carry on being there. So the relationship is twofold. Someone else would have directed Steel Game. It would have been a success. The scripts yeah. are fantastic. It would just be different. And so it's not the fact that it only works this way. It's like that parallel university theory. It would work a different way. Yeah. But also, you need to maintain those relationships once you start them. If I suddenly piss off all of these guys and say, we don't want to work with him again, I won't be back to do it. You know, and actually, you, you build up relationships. And the biggest bugbear I have is courtesy in the industry. Go back to Ken Stott or people like that. Some people, are not Ken, but there are people who are really rude and think they can get away with it when they're big. But I guarantee when they fall down, mm. no one will help them on their way at yeah. all. So relationships are really important in maintaining them to be respected and I not to get trod on. But also that translates to what you see on the screen. And I really, I truly believe that. Mm -hmm. The fact that we, we all arrive at half seven in the morning, whatever it might be, and there's somebody prodding a thing in your eye and putting <laughs> latex on you, but we laugh our way through the day. And people who come onto the set, um, we well, I, I just drag them onto the Winnie and sit them. We used to have a can of uh, Diet Coke that was actually electric and it would give you a shot. <laughs> <laughs> we would bring them on. Can you pass me that? Ah, yeah, <laughs> and that was it. So by the time they got to the set, and, but you know they yeah. were absolutely relaxed and everything was fine. So we, you know everybody. You they were relaxed because they pissed themselves. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, you you mentioned already, Paul. Um, Winston's brother, uh, we have a clip of that scene. Oh, uh, you get to see some of Still Game from the last series of Still Game. This is uh, one of uh, the... Actually, we've played this the wrong way. The second clip with Winston's brother is the clip we're going to look at now. Not the first clip, which was originally supposed to be what we were playing what? just get now. Get more beer! <laughs> it's no coming! Isa, please. Away you go, you halfway! What have you done? What's going on with that? That's too much! That's absolutely roasted, you base my poor potatoes out of here! My balls are getting poached! It's now or never, Jack! Are you ready? One, two, three! That's a good gang of pals you've got here, Winston. Oh, aye. I'm really lucky. Jack, Victor, Tam, Eric, Isa, Naveed. <clears throat> oh, and Stevie the bookie. That was awful news about poor old Auntie Lily dying, wasn't it? <laughs> and there it is. Yes, what is? The reason for your wee visit. Your bus leaves in an hour, but there's still one last wee bit of business to take care of, ain't there? The bite. I don't know what you're talking about. I've warned you! My sitting is soaking not! 
How can you still be stuck? Sahelia, so, I carry on right enough. I mean, they're saying the phone it can be up to... Oh, shut up. I'm not wanting your life story, you daft old trout. Have you any furry liquid? Hey, in my kitchen under the sink. What's he going to do with furry liquid, Jack? I don't know. Maybe he wants to do a couple of dishes. Tell himself doing a bit. I'm a therapy that into anger management. Right, out the road! This is the letter that I got telling me Lily had passed. As soon as that arrived, I knew you wouldn't be long at the back of it, because that's how you operate. Four times in the last 40 years I've seen you, each time to borrow money which you never paid back. You never even came to your ma or your dad's funeral because you knew they had nothing. So, was there any... Money? Aye. She left 4,000. That's 2,000 each. No. Take the lot. Can I just say something? You, th this is, gets called a masterclass. If you want to see fucking great TV acting, Mr. Riley there, he does nothing but everything. His face hardly moves. <laughs> no, 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 honestly, I, th I generally, I think that's, it's brilliant for Paul in that little scene there. I also it's think, and I'm sure great. most people, sorry, Michael. No, good on, that's me. I'm sure most people probably agree that. That's, that kind of sums up, I think, the best of Still Game, really, where you've got some real kind of high comedy played right next to something that actually goes straight for the heart. Is, is that a recipe that you, you deliberately stick to for? Is that the key to Still Game? Uh, well, we don't aim to do it in every episode, but I mean, if, if, there's a, if you can see that there's an avenue where you're going to be able to get a bit of that pathos out of it, then you're, you're going to go for it. But it's not, it's not a new thing. I mean, if you look at um, Steptoe and Son, for instance, there are very poignant moments in Steptoe about the relationship between the old fella and the young fella. Chaplin did it all the time. Chaplin did it, I mean, it's so, and, and uh, so did Laurel and Hardy. There were sad <laughs> bits there, you know? And, and, and we like doing that. And th that's, I think that's part of the heart of the show that, that you know, yeah. you have to consider, you know, you don't just fall off the platform when you get to 70. Um, you have to see that they've got concerns. And I mean, you even hear it in songs, modern songs now, you know, the, you, the, the guy, you know, when I'm six years old, that, that kind of rap song yeah. thing. By the time you get to 60, 65, your kids don't phone you. You'd look if you see them every three months. And we can't fix that, but at least we can point it up every now and again, you know? Yeah. They are people, they have an existence and they've had a life. And yet, we seem to just disregard them at the end. Not on. Yeah. To what extent are you aware of that as something that really lands with the audience? Because, I mean, obviously, people can come up and they can recite uh, uh, punchlines to you on a, on a regular basis in the street, and they probably do. But, I mean, do you have people having a quiet word with you about how they were touched by this stuff? Yeah, but since we did the play at Edinburgh, you know, people would come up because, I mean, the whole thing was built on poignancy. I mean, the, oh, la right. the laughs were the second thing, weren't they, really? Yeah. And that was a very, very sad story about three um, old men that had been basically dumped. Uh, by their families and were living in a tower block amidst this mayhem place that was going down downhill rapidly. So th that, that, that was essentially the story. The laughs came second. Mm -hmm. um, 
So, but we just kept, you know, when we, when we got the TV series, we, we bore in mind that there was, we did get a lot of feedback about people sniffing, sniffling and crying <laughs> in the audience at certain bits because we reminded them. So <laughs> we, we went to Canada and a Jamaican woman with dreadlocks come up to me and, uh, and said to me that I reminded her of her grandfather. Do the accent. <laughs> I'm just about to say, don't do that. I swear to God, it was only three years when, what was it, Toronto? Toronto, Toronto aye. A Jamaican grandfather. And, I'm like, and what she actually meant was the sentiment was exactly the kind of thing that her father, her grandfather would have done. And that's good feedback. Michael, tell us how it is to, to direct these scenes, because there's obviously, there's obviously com they're, they're completely different scenes. Imagine I Zoo. Yeah, I, I was just going <laughs> to say. What happened was we'd done the episode with the spider and it had been chaos and all day and every cast member's in there. And, next, and then the next day, there was me, Paul, Gav and uh, Gary Miller. And I remember him and me looking at thank fuck for this piece. And it was just really quiet and nice on the set for a while. <laughs> it's fine. Everyone, I always decided that when you go into a pub, old guys, my grandfather from Liverpool, when he went to his local pub, always took the same spot. So that's fine. And that's the blocking sorted, you know. Gav's going to be behind the bar, the guy's going to sit in their usual place, that kind of thing. But it very much also depends on whether these monkeys are in a mood or not. Because if they come in with minks in a foot, it, then it really is just like a circus. And if not, and they're a bit bored, <laughs> and it's towards the end of the day, and I find out if they've had a pudding or not, so their blood sugar's a bit low, then I'm like, well, I can crack on with this scene. They're like, yeah, it's fucking unreal. So, it, you know, yeah, it's, it's like the Ikea ball pool, to be honest with you. There's a real issue for Philly and the Beads because uh, Ford <laughs> and Greg are just firing tankfastics. Yeah. Honestly, apple sours, you know, blood sugar is through the roof, and these turn into wanes. We started spraying lacquer across a lot of the sweets <laughs> just to keep people's grubby hands off it. Well, but she no, found a rat. No, no, that, that's true. Yes, because we, we always just eat the sweets, so I never eat them now. And, uh, and I said to <laughs> I said to Sanj, "What's all those wee bits in the Coke? I was always with fizzy cola bottles." And he went, "I don't know." And I said, "Why is there wee funny bits in them?" And it was rat droppings. Oh. And it's because at night they hadn't been covered and it was filmed in a big studio and yeah. Mina yeah, keeps ages all together. Terrible. A quarter of our droppings, please. <laughs> but the lovely thing is, is because these guys know their characters so well. I remember when we hadn't met for like seven years and we sat around the table at Greg's to do the first hydro reading and uh, Mark starts off as Tam and he's like, Mummy, I can't do it when he does it, his mummy daddy voice, uh, when he says that as Tam and then you instantly fall about laughing when you hear their voices doing it. And it, and it just takes you straight back. So it's it's a fairly easy job for me now. What do you prefer? Do you prefer the, the serious stuff or the, or the No, the I like the variety. You know, as a comic director, doing the stuff with the bath where we're gonna build a separate room and drop a bath fifteen feet full of water and all that kind of stuff is a challenge and good fun. But there is a real lovely beauty because I love those solemn moments because they do punctuate the series really well and I, I like directing good actors, it's nice to do. So I enjoyed those as well. But I wouldn't do drama all the time because drama's a lot easier than comedy in that respect. And drama is easier than comedy because yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of like we received wisdom that a comedy will never win an Oscar because somehow it's the poor cousin of drama. Comedy is drama with extra stuff. Mm -hmm. It's the same rules. It's the same three acts. It's the same dynamic. And you've got to make them laugh three times a page. I've never understood why comedy yeah. was seen as some kind of poor relation to drama. And it's why when Ford and Greg write, they can full focus. One of my favourite scenes in Still Game is when Jack and Victor are having a pop at each other because um, um, is it uh, uh, you've railroaded Victor into going to Canada, go, phoning yeah. his son, and he's I'm not interested. Sam, right, yeah. And you have this big stand-up row, and there's not one joke in it, and it's beautiful. Mm. But it's because it, it's still you know it's still obeying the same rules. Well, the funny thing was we wrote five Gregs in that, but and you pulled them. Just laughed. <laughs> 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 if you the drama, right? If you say to someone, "I love you." 
Uh, there's only three ways to do that. I love you, I love you, I love you. That's the three ways You've to do it. You've never been to drama college, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Be a tree. Uh, but at the end of the day... What with the pollen here? I love you! <laughs> 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 That's drama. Just in a gyro. I love you! Kid pirate Greg, I love you! So at the end of the day, Sandra's quite right. You've got that on top of that. You've got to make them laugh. And you have to decide, is it a laugh that you want everyone to get at that one moment? You've got to make everyone laugh at that point. How do you shoot that and make that happen? And, yeah. it, and, and there's a lot, as these guys will testify, there's a lot of uh, drama actors who can't do comedy at all. For, uh, I suppose it's kind of, you know, the, 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 the setup when you're, when you're writing uh, with you and Greg. Is there... Is there a st does, does one of you have a, have a, a, a sharper nib in comedy and the other one, you know, gets the, lands the emotional stuff of it a bit? No, it's, ne it's never been like that. We've had that a few, quite a few times. No, it's all born out of conversation. Um, and we make each other laugh. If we didn't make each other laugh, nothing would happen. And if we're not laughing at what we're talking about, then it never goes on the paper. If we find that we're halfway doing a page and we haven't laughed yet, all we're doing is shredding laughter. You can write all day long without, a you know, uh, gags. But unless they're making you laugh, there's no, no point in them. But we're lucky because we're at a bit now where the, the, the cast, the core cast, we know them so well, we know what their abilities are, and you know that when you're writing it, they can lift it off the page. Not only is it funny to us, yeah. we can hear them speaking it. When we write stuff for Coxie, we can hear them saying it. When we write stuff for Paul James, Sanj, you can hear it while they're saying it. Not so much with Gavin. <laughs> but, 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 <laughs> no, but do you know what I mean, though? It's, it's because we know them so well, we can hear them say, and that's definitely something Tam would say. And we can hear them, and, and that, that's that's just so. There's not really anybody in charge of the emotional bits of the thing. We identify that as we're talking. I mean, some, sometimes you'll be sitting because we know each mm -hmm. other so well. The two will sit up, and look at one, and go, oh, "There's a weepy in that," and we go and we start writing a weepy bit, and you, you know, you just identify it as you're going. I know I've asked you this question about a thousand times over the years, mm -hmm. but, but 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 tell us if you can um, how you write. What is that? You know, tell us about the, you know, the setup. How do you do it? Aye, well, it's, 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 it, Greg and I were just talking about this the other day. It's changed dramatically over the years. It started with a, a big computer about this size and with a keyboard on it and a printer. And then. And two uh, of you sat at that one computer? The two sat at the one computer. I don't type, well, I can type it. The dog's slow. Greg's a bit quicker than me. And two sat next to each other in front of the screen. Then, once we started getting employed, uh, I, I, I went to Comet and I bought two screens <laughs> and one computer and two chairs. And the two, so we could sit with, with, our, with our backs to one another, right? And it was all very Star Trek, you know what I mean? And then the next, what happened next was we got laptops, and then I got an iPad. So what you would get, you would get the script up, and you could go like that up onto the telly with it. So the big telly in the living room, so you know, sitting there like that. Which, I don't know how we're going to do it next. I, Q, F, I don't know, you know, <laughs> in a wheelchair. Uh, but yeah, I don't know how high tech it's going to get, but. It, it's changed. So if you, I couldn't tell you how we do it, but how we write has changed over the piece. It used to take us a hell of a time to produce a script, and it doesn't now. And it's largely down to us knowing these people. But you're always in the room together, aren't you, you and Greg? Yeah, we had thought at one point, Greg was in the States for about seven months, and we'd thought, let's tr try and do this high, super high-tech where you could see the Skype. other person. Yeah, yeah Skype. And, uh, but, nah, punch like, it's not the same. Yeah, you, yeah. Uh, yeah. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's no use. Uh, no, you need the other person there because you need to agree that it's time for tea, it's time for a caramel shortcake, it's time to go and eat something. Time to back on. Go back on the screen. That's why we only need the one computer. 
I love you. I love you. Michael, uh, obviously there's different different ways of writing, uh, some yep. of which we didn't know about before. Uh, tell us about the, uh, you have the overview obviously, you're the director, you're effectively the boss. Uh, tell us about, um, and this might be news to all of you, might put you in an uncomfortable position to answer this question. How, uh, how if you can grade each of their approaches or if you can cut us in a little bit of, 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 of something about each of their approaches. Oh, well, I used to joke with Jane that Isa had like, Isa one, Isa two, because she would come in and stand here or look this way or whatever. But um, Ford does, Ford's best on take three, almost always. He'll come in, he'll do it first and it's good, but we haven't got it right technically. Second one, he gets bored and rushes it, and then the third one, we go, yeah, that's fine. Right. Sanj is great until he gets a big monologue, and then we need to give him some business, like something to eat or yeah. something, and then, he, and then he'll <laughs> nail it, or that kind of stuff. Gav fusses a lot before he does a take, but we'll get it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he comes at his oh, lunch. Fuck is that? <laughs> <laughs> this is the last. Pull the shit on us, though. So yeah, and then uh, and then these two come in and they're like, right, what do we need to do? Good. What's interesting actually is is Coxie and Paul's are when before they come on set normally. Uh, you guys tend to sit and have a gossip. You'll be usually gossiping with the extras. You'll be sat somewhere doing something. You two pace around the set like the studio. And, and, and I'll be like, where's Paul? And he's like about half a mile away. And he's walking around doing his like, and he's away. Whereas these guys tend to stay stationary doing something. So each of them have got their own wee way of doing it. And, uh, but once they come onto the set, it's just like, right, well, let's get on with it. This is the way we're going to do. Sometimes it depends on the time of day, uh, whether, <laughs> we decide, <laughs> whether we decide to shoot. Uh, Jack and Victor first, or Eric Tam and Winston first, or uh, towards Gav first in the pub. Sometimes there's good reasons for it, other times it's like, right, he knows his lines more than them, we'll do this first. It can be terribly harsh, you know, the, the, there's a fella that plays Eric, Jimmy Martin. Yes, yeah. he's on uh, the screen there. The yeah, the, the, there right. he's there. Um, he had to come out the toilet and say, you've run out of Bog Grove, Bobby. That was all he had to say. <laughs> and we were tired, it was late in the day, and he was knackered, and we'd, he'd already done quite a bit. And and he's 86. He's 86. Yeah, he's 86. You've run out of God Bull Boggy. Every permutation of them letters, except the right, the right ones. I haven't seen the right letters, not necessarily the right order. <laughs> but, but we're not getting him. He might be 96 or 106, we're not letting him go. Every time he fucks it up, woo! <laughs> <laughs> You said GoPro Goggy! <laughs> oh, he was raging, but I eventually got it right. Yeah, there was a big cheer. So, oh, we were, can I just say this? This is terrible. We were, we were mixing, <laughs> and Jimmy, Jimmy, and he doesn't see well either. Oh, God, big good Jimmy. Yes, he's 86. And so we're filming, <laughs> <laughs> we're filming the River City set. So Jimmy got into the Rogue Studio, and he got into the tall ship instead of the clans. <laughs> <laughs> I said to him, I'm going to lock him in so he can't get out. I've got so, a photo of this. Photo. Know, I've got a photo. So I'm just excited and I'm leaning against the door and I'm crying with laughter. And then about 10 minutes later, I'm like, oh, this is rubbish. And he, hadn't, he hadn't even noticed. We had to go in and get him, Jimmy. That, that, that guy that was playing, that guy that was playing, <laughs> your brother. Aye, aye. He came in and he said, so the guy that's playing his brother, Kenny's standing there, and he's standing there, and he said to Paul, are you playing a double part in this? There's two people there. <laughs> 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 like a magician. Bless 
It's brilliant, absolutely brilliant. Um, I, uh, I just want to check. And no, someone... tell me, I'll tell you, this is a belter. Oh, okay. <laughs> Jimmy would tell you, well, Jimmy, Jimmy used to drink a lot and uh, he chucked it, right, way, 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 way back, a hundred years ago he stopped it. He says, I decided to move to, is it Soko, is Jimmy Stice? Yeah, no, Musselburgh. He said, I decided to move to Musselburgh. He says, and open a trick shop. He says, open a, open a trick shop for the Wednesday by Yo-Yo's daughter. That's about 30 years ago. So his wife's coming down every day with Simon's that. He's like, never think about a drink. I've had a drink for about 30, 20 years at this point. And he went, you know, this shop's too big for a, for a trick shop. He says, because I've got all that down the other side. She says, what are you going to do? He opened an off license. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you can, you've got that, right? I'll have a half bottle of yo-yo. <laughs> <laughs> Whippy kissing her bottle of vodka, Jesus <laughs> Christ. Um, I just need to check, how are we doing for time? Uh, if nobody's got anywhere to go, we can do another 15 minutes. Does anyone have anywhere to go? No. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> a question to you guys. <laughs> oh, that's right, that was theirs. Right, we've got another clip then. Let's right. play the, the first clip that was supposed to be the second clip. That's now the first clip. Let's play that just now. This is it. End of an era. Mm. Well, at least everybody's here to see it. Mm. Oh, everybody. It's Tam and Winston. What's going on? What's going on? We tanned that bottle of rum. Oh, aye. Well, that was good. Oh, look, there's Jack and Victor. And Eric. Isa. Naveed. What, what are they doing? They're not looking up here. What for? How many more flights? Twenty seconds. Oh, I can't watch. Okay. You don't kill Lucy Bastard! Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, five, four, three, two, one. Oh, 
obviously things have um, since since the very first days of Still Game on TV, things have um, have developed. Technology has developed. I dare say budgets have developed. Can you tell us a bit about some of the things maybe saw in uh, in that? So sometimes clip, the yeah. boys will say. Uh, Oh, I'm going to write we we half page here, and it'll say there are, there's a new block of flats behind Osprey Heights. Never seen them before. There it is now, and so now I've got a paint in. So the the other block of flats you saw in there behind the chain link fence is completely painted in all the way through. The sparks when Paul uh, destroys the demolition control box, they're all painted in. All that kind of stuff. Uh, and so did uh, you get every shot that day, Michael? Well, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> so we were filming in a. Was it the next? Was it the next day? I think it uh, was. He says to me, um, "You're not going to believe this." I went home last night, and I f the, the scene there where you see the the cable being pulled out, which is the whole the whole the whole, whole point. Like Osprey Heights doesn't get there. I forgot to film. <laughs> Honestly, I was driving home like this, and I suddenly went, "Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> so expensive!" And, and then a block of flats were difficult to film in. They weren't happy about having their lobby stuffed with pianos and falling oh, sofas. I had to go back and do it, and I was like, "Fuck." <laughs> Honestly, <laughs> we, met, we met a couple that day, a man and woman, and they said to us that they'd expressly asked the council to get a flat in that block of flats. <laughs> they asked for a transfer and they waited for months and they got one. And now they live in Osprey Heights and they're all chuffed about it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Christ knows where they were living before. <laughs> As you can see in the back of the shop there, there's a guy with a collie watching who's just wandered by and decided to join in and, and join the scene. So there was a lot more sort of CGI and there's a lot more cutting. So for instance, when the two boys stand up and look out the window, they're looking at a photograph initially. And then we took the, the, the camera up to the flats and shot all you guys down in the below watching. And then we have to take the camera back down and shoot all the way up. Or sometimes we take a couple of cameras out, which is better with budgets and what have you. But you do need to plan that out. And sometimes you'll get what looks like an innocuous half-page script. And you're like, this is going to take me about eight hours to do. Ford, obviously there was a period where there was no still game for a while. And, and now it's back. And I think a lot of people would agree it's, it's probably better than ever. And, and the last series was, was really brilliant. It was bang, bang, bang on form. Without that break, do you think it would have been... No. Would I, it be still here? No, we needed the break. Um, we, we were on an endless treadmill. We were getting on each other's nerves. It was just endless. You were making one series. And then they were, there was one year they asked us for 12. We did the six and they'd done that well. They said, give us 12. And we, we did nine that year, remember series two? Yeah. Uh, which was a struggle. So basically the cycle you're in, I mean, it's, you can't, it's terrible complaining about this, but you write the six, it takes you about six months to write them and then you film for six weeks. And then they're commissioning you again and you're happy about it. But then you've no really, you don't, you don't get any holidays. You've got to start writing again and go through the whole process again. So that was great. No, no complaints for about, Seven series, was it? Six. Mm. six. And, uh, and then the, the rest of the world's happening as well, and it just becomes a pressure. And then you suddenly think, are we going to end up like Francie and Josie here? Are we going to just be known for this? Is, is this our job? And just start nipping at one another and eventually go, oh, you know what? Let's, let's hang the spurs up for a while. And, but we didn't kill anybody. So as the time went past, obviously they built that hydro, and we, we saw an opportunity there that we didn't want to miss. And then the next thing was we didn't have to ask for the job again. They came to us, but BBC Network came and said to us, look, do you want to do a television series? And we went, ah, okay. And, you know, we weren't actually trying to get into it. We knew they would want to do telly, but they came and asked us this time, and that was the difference. Can I, were you guys nervous coming on the set of the new series, you guys coming in? No. Like, um, or was it weird you know for you guys coming because of the new design? I, 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 no, I think, I, I think in many ways it was fantastic, but we... You're, you're stepping into the same shoes. You know exactly yeah. what you're doing. You're going back. We're not going back. We're going back into carry on after a break. We're not going back to 
think it was the read-through. We did it at the BBC, the read-through, and then after that, we're like, oh, fuck, I remember right. this. I, yeah. I, I, yeah. You know, and then so there was a wee gap of about four weeks or six weeks before we started filming, and it was, it was just I straight think it back in. it was quite formal, wasn't it? It we was used to, Yeah, I mean, it was just made up here, and there wouldn't be that many people. It was just us, and but it was was tons of folk <coughs> from London, and that felt quite stressful. But but it, but it didn't take long it. for us to start laughing again. No, no, yeah. no. And that was when we realised, oh, this is you know, yeah, it's yeah, the same yeah. as it ever was yeah. kind of thing, you know. Yeah. I mean, you get you know, the, 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 once you start the network, there's a lot more people involved. You know, there's a lot more people that the script's got to go past. But I must say, they were very good to us. You know, they, they knew that it was a working formula, and they didn't put too much pressure on us. But once the doors shut and, and Michael shouted action, it's only us that are there. Mm -hmm. So once you start enjoying that time and get used to doing that again, that's where the that's where the good stuff is. You know what I mean? They're not you know you've not got people breathing doing your net while you're working. Uh, they, they leave you to your own devices. Yeah, they trust us. The one big difference for me was filming in the summer. We always used to film in the winter, and it's nice when you get up at six in the morning. It's light outside, but see when it's six o'clock. And you're in man-made fibres and <laughs> wig and beard, and it's a full clansman, and you are just sweating. You're in a big steel you. box. Oh my God! It was, remember, there was, was one day in particular, six of us around that table, and it was like the seventh circle of Hades. Yeah. <laughs> Boss hoop was oh, horrible, horrible. Uh, and it was that. that but, 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 we uh, be the worst of it, Sam. No, no, yeah. no, yeah. Twelve layers of plastic. Mind that, that time you had to ask for continuities to get fucking get this cardigan off. Well, you, you were yeah. in like th three layers of wool oh, on top of everything. Oh, it's layer upon layer upon layer upon. It's unbelievable, when actually. You, when you do a job... And you get your tummy. Yeah. You do a telly job, do you a telly job, and you see, you see the guy, I, I wore a suit, did Shetland wore quite a, a suit, I think, I thought, I said, much for that, what, how much will you give me that for? Because after that TV job, with a, they'll sell you the stuff for a cushy you go. So she said to me... She <laughs> said Tam, to ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> 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 That's basically what happened. <laughs> I went, I went where to buy the suit. It was 350 quid. I mean, 350 quid. That's much for me. She went, she gave me 40. I said, I'm not giving you fucking 40. <laughs> 20 pounds. Thank you. <laughs> but I'm saying, for you, so you do that if you go to a job and stuff's quite good. Not a garment. No. <laughs> if I purchased the still game, a horrible old acrylic jumper. Far up, tight at your boys and stuff. <laughs> oh, terrible. Jane, Jane, is the, um... You know what a sketch for two in the fact that it was two dugs in a cell, mind? Oh, God! And Aye. You were going up, it's supposed to be the dug pound, and me and Greg have got these dug suits on the night with the makeup and the, the ears and all that. And we were basically trying to get owners to, to take us, because we were dugs. And we're like, look, look, we can do card tricks, and it was a shit sketch, right? <laughs> Took us a full day, would you film that? No. We were demented. <laughs> the, 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 the comedy <laughs> unit bought the cheapest fur fabric. <laughs> Never lined it. So, you know that oh, stuff that's at the other side of that fur fabric? We're wearing that naked, we're bollock naked underneath it with these suits on. And we were genuinely going like that like dugs. <laughs> 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 we were in absolute bits for days, chunks of skin all burnt, and, oh, it was murder. I never ever bought that suit, I never made a thing for it. <laughs> I did. <laughs> Jane, you have to listen to this uh, all the time, and, and you are, of course, by far the most demure member of the cast. Is it difficult? You know, do you sort of crave some female company, a bit of the sisterhood? Well, sometimes I've got Shamshad, who's Mina, and sometimes I've got Peggy, haven't I? So, um, I do sometimes, and I do talk to the extras. <laughs> Not to be <laughs> too hard, too, I'm desperate for somebody to talk to. But, eh... Uh, <laughs> I know all their life stories. But, you um, circulated a safe word to the extras. <laughs> what the bail from a conversation with Jane? Pull the cord. <laughs> <laughs> I think it was maybe 
harder at the very beginning when we were all younger. There were more like boys then. They're more like men now, so it's, it's easier. I mean, they talked about, well, you know, the, the conversations that they, they used to talk about in the old days. Be careful. Yeah. I know, I know, yeah, I'm to be careful. Jean, what kind of man does this, right? What kind of man does this? So I'm sitting in the clans when I'm sitting at the table, and I, somebody wet willies me right in the ear. <laughs> and I turn around, and it's one of the extras, and she's an older woman, she like. And she, and she turns around, and I went, what the fuck like that? And she, she turns and she points at this boy. And she said, he made me do it. <laughs> Long was, days. Honesty, God. <laughs> That's the kind of level of humour in it. Um, <laughs> folks, we've got a little bit of time, I think, for some questions from the floor. And there are one or two uh, roving mics. And I'm sure there are more than one or two of you who want to ask some questions. There's already a hand up right in the middle. So uh, let's be hearing from you. Hi guys, uh, really love the show. Um, just wanted to ask a question to Ford and to Michael. Um, so when you're writing a script, um, do you find it um, sort of, you, you spend a lot of time with it, you write all the jokes, uh, do you find it tough to hand it to Michael for him to direct or like, do you trust him entirely? Or? No, there, there was a bit of worry at the beginning, you know, back, back in the day, um, because some, you, you don't know until you've, you've filmed it whether it genuinely people get what you're writing. Uh, we don't worry so much now because he's on the same station as us, if you know what I mean. So when we write something, down, we kind of know everybody's going to get it. Uh, so much so that sometimes you don't have to put exclamation marks and commas in at some points. We just know that when we hand it to Paul, he'll know exactly how to phrase it. Uh, just because he knows his, his character and same goes for everybody else. And I guess that's the same, the same with Michael. Eh? Yeah, I, if I don't get something or I've got a question about it, I'll go back to the boys. I never ever change a word, but I might change the location, or sometimes they'll write "old man enters pub," and then I might say, "Well, actually, you know, budget-wise, we might give that to Eric if we can, or whatever." But uh, they trust me to put it on the screen, and I and I just basically, as long as I understand everything, or we'll, might ask, "Where's that joke heading? Where's that joke start?" Because I might not get it. So I, we actually have a lot of conversations, and then uh, in terms of new characters how you'd seen that guy, but they trust me 90% of the time, unless you've got someone specific in mind, I'll go and cast it. And, and, and we do trust each other now, so it is fine. At the beginning where I, sometimes, <laughs> I remember once reading, and I've lived here since 83, you can hear from my accent, I'm a Northern English guy, and it said one goat, right? Like W-A-N, goat. And I was thinking, this fuck's livestock doing incredible. Like, it turned out, he says, I've got one, right? I've, I've got one in that accent. And I was having to read it really quietly in the comedy unit out loud, and I was like, I've got one. You know, like that. But no, most of the time, if I've got a problem with them, I'll ring them. And if not, we trust each other to get on with it. We genuinely said to one of the producers, uh, you, uh, Greg and I said to one another, are you going away anywhere? And I said, nah, Hamel Damey. And we ended up putting it in the show, and the producer went, where is Hamel Damey? These two ended up doing a sketch, <laughs> Questions for Sanjeev, but we see Synthesizer Patel again on our screens. Oh, I wish that was up to me, because oh. I don't know the character. But if you want to hear him singing, would you like that? Yeah, definitely. Go on YouTube and look up Electric Bray. Brilliant. Synthesizer Patel sings a song about Electric Bray. Thank you, man. There Jeez. you are. <laughs> <Bet> aye. <coughs> Throw him out. <laughs> synthesizer, synthesizer Patel, for those that uh, are wondering who he is, is one of Sanjeev's other characters from another sketch show. There's a show called Look Around You, uh, basically a spoof of Tomorrow's World, and they created this character called Synthesizer Battelle, who, who um, uh, liked Synthesizer so much he changed his name, 
and it was, it was such a laugh to do. Uh, and um, I, that was 10 years ago, and I still get the odd tweet and sort of message about it. It was a lovely job, but um, uh, it was weird though, because it was kind of, still game was still on the go at the time. So it's, it's, it's nice to be able to play two quite characters with big Asian influences, and, and, but comedy, which is great. Because I've got any number of uncles I can impersonate. So. <laughs> <laughs> any other questions? So, so you you guys mentioned a lot about persistence in the beginning to to make still game happen. Um, most of us in here will have goals and visions and dreams, and you guys had one at the start. Um, you've kind of that's came to now, mm -hmm. um, and life kind of has its way, just bringing about you know tough times, and, and you go off the beaten track. What just maybe personally kind of kept you guys going through tough times in your life but you know bringing you back to still game and ultimately making that dream happen what was the kind of maybe tactics or anything that you could well, any you advice you, you mean you mean as we were coming up <laughs> coming up you've well, got that to keep that dream alive and and if you go through a tough time how yeah. do you kind of stay on track well you, you've just got to remember that you're close to getting close to the audience you're, you're always you know you can always get with them and even before you've started you get wee whiffs that something's going to happen. I don't know, it's, it's not particular. You just get a wee idea that, I know, I know, we know we're right here. We just need to keep, no get this happened. You get in the pub, you have a couple of pints, go, bastards, they're not getting it. And when you have that fight, even if you're fighting that fight on your own or with a, a writing partner, as long as you keep, keep with it, there are millions of people who just gave up. And, and, if, and, and if you don't believe in your stuff, absolutely. Because some people genuinely go, oh, it's not that good, but we have a look at it. And as soon as someone says that to me, I'm like, well, if you don't think that, why am I wasting my time reading it? You, you absolutely have to believe what you've written yeah. is worth pushing every single moment of the second. Otherwise, don't waste anyone's time, including your own. So if you totally believe in it, and I know that these guys say, this is fantastic, we're not budging on this, and you'll get a, a exec producer saying to them and me, oh, that needs to change. You go, no, trust us, it doesn't. And you've got to really protect and have confidence in your own work, no matter what it is. And, and we do it in Scotland a great deal. It's a low self-esteem thing. Well, I get actors coming for audition. Thanks for seeing me. I know I'm not very good, but I appreciate your time. And I'm instantly like, that's what a terrible thing to say to me. I want you to come in and say, I'm great. I'm perfect for the part. Not being arrogant about it, but being confident about it. And that's difficult sometimes because we think, oh, I owe this guy something. You don't. If you believe in what you're doing is good, it's good. And push it. Also, it does help when you write with someone called <coughs> Rachel Greg. I write with someone called Donnie McCleary. And... Uh, I know that if I if I make Donnie laugh, then it's good, it, and, and we have a two tick system. So that way, you might you know you might you know I, I suffer from lack of confidence in stuff I write myself. I do still, at this age, at this stage of my career, I still think, well, that's shite, because only I laughed at it. But see, honestly, the simple thing of having two people working on something together, it makes a massive difference. And also, Ford was talking about when him and Greg write together is about making each other laugh, and the, the, the stuff you improvise in character is the stuff that ends up on the page. It's so much easier when there's two of you doing that. And it does, it goes on the page, and you don't have to do that much editing, really. The, the thing is, you kind of let statistics frighten you. Only 2% of actors are working at any one time. 2%, that's ridiculous. Who would get involved in that? You wouldn't even go to the bookies for that gig. <laughs> so, do you know what I mean? Um, but it still doesn't put you off, because there's something inherent just keeps driving you on to get things. And it doesn't need to be acting, it's writing, everything to but do that, with the creative but bit. The hard work aspect of that, I remember vividly when we did this, we did Still Game at the Edinburgh Festival, and at the same time, chewing the fat was on the radio. Mm -hmm. So they were then both think, well, you know, the, the writing had been done for the, for the stage show, but they were still writing the radio show at the same time. And it was during that run that you got the nod for the TV show, wasn't it? Yep. Just, just at the tail end. Yep. And um, 
And so that kind of hard work aspect of, and, and also aligned with never say die, um, that's probably at the heart of it really, you know what I mean? Just keep going, keep going, keep going. And also nothing that you write is wasted. I mean, I've still got a sketch I wrote 20 years ago that I still want to make, and hopefully will one day. And the other thing is, is I mean, someone gave, gave me this advice. Anesthetist Patel. And anesthetics are so, so expensive these days. Um, <laughs> one guy gets the joke, thanks for that. Um, but creativity breeds creativity. Someone told me two, three years ago, because the industry has changed. I mean, I get offered stuff now where they say, it's online, it won't pay much, or it's kind of like, we're, we're a young team and we're, we're making this film and we'd quite like you to be in it, but we can't pay any money. I made the decision a while ago that I, if I have the time to do a job, I'll do a job because it'll lead you to meet other people, but also, if you're creative in any way, it actually makes you more creative. If you can stay in the game, doing different things. I mean, I've written songs, I've written sketches, I've, I've done loads of different things, and I, but it's all part of storytelling. And if you can keep mm. those plates spinning, it, it actually mm. exercises your brain and it keeps you match fit for anything that you want to do. So even if something, it, yeah, it might not pay anything, but it's good for your spirit, it's good for your soul, it's good for your creativity, and creativity definitely breeds creativity. I've had to sleep with people. <laughs> to get jobs. I mean, Which one of the cast? Well, no, it was, it was, well. it was, it was when I was young, it was a paperweight. <laughs> but I would say, the only thing about Sandra would say is be a wee bit careful about that because, I mean, we, we he, Mark was a year below me at drama school and we've still got quite a lot of friends who started off doing loads of stuff for nothing and they set their stall out that they are the kind of people that would be happy to do student films and do it for nothing and, you know, never Bring take your anyone trousers. <laughs> you know, and um, none of them really got anywhere, did they? Because they, they got known to be people who were almost not really professional. You have to value professional. Your own but, but also, yeah, you yeah, do so stuff that you, if you like the yeah, script, yeah. you if wouldn't you do any old shite. And you, know you would I mean? be careful yeah. that you'd only occasionally do that. I yeah. think, I think it's, why, why it's very important. Uh, Stephen Pressfield's a writer, and he's written a lot of stuff. One of them is called um, Do the Work. It talks about how just the resistance stops you writing. But he's always talking about. You know, start before you're ready and all that, and think big, you know, mm. swing for the seats. And he's right. You see, if you're thinking small all the time, he, he's got a habit of thinking big that has done it all the time. And both of them, when it came to, actually the first time at the Hydro, I know Still Game is popular, but who on earth, <laughs> you know? And he's got a bit of that that you think, well, why not, you know? And that is the thing, you know, surprise yourself. But it is in the sense, you don't, you know, you, you know your worth. Know your worth as well. It's, it's good to do some stuff. The bit, Aye, but we're Scottish, so. Anyway. Aye. You said to me when we did Pulp Fiction. Uh, that, that was a bit ambitious. I've aged badly. When we did Pulp Video, um, he went to me, McCarry, seen a fucking year. You might to see it. We had gone and read something. He said, and then you just like, oh, shite. <laughs> 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 Nothing happened. So it was two years. Give me a fucking break. <laughs> but you still didn't give up. That's no, the thing with him. No. Uh, you know, he was right back on the. On the horse. The name of that person you referenced there again, just for anyone who missed it. Stephen Pressfield, he's called. And he tells good stories about thinking he'd, oh, he'd made it. He wrote King Kong, co-wrote King Kong, with the guy who wrote the Alien producer. Oh, 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 he could not believe it. Yes, had the, the premiere, uh, uh, Chinese theatre, LA. Woo, all his pals, and a squad of them, and I'm watching a the theatre this side. I'm watching the brawl like that at the end up. He had a party next door. He said, <laughs> nobody came. Oh, no. <laughs> 
he said, I, I, I was panicking, you know, I, I, I went to... Uh, Big Monkey in the Corner. Big Monkey in the Corner. <laughs> <laughs> he basically, he said he went out, he said he went out to a theatre, I went out to a theatre, this can't be happening, he said, and Linda Hamilton was in it, biggest thing to be, but he said, I went out to a, I went out to a cinema in outskirts, I thought, this will give you a better idea, he said, I went in and there was a young hippie boy in the 80s, he said, just, I'm just wondering how's uh, <laughs> King Kong, and he said, I never, I never get it out. The guy went, oh, <laughs> it's a fucking stinker, man, stay away from it. But he said, I was so low at that point. But his, his pal went, oh, what are you wanting? You've written a Hollywood miss, what happens? What are you going to do? Get over it, go to the next thing. And that's true, because as she just said about Pulp Video, right. you, could, you could have walked away then. That could have been it, if I never thought that, well, that's, that's not meant to be. See, when we got Pulp Video, Greg and I went and sat in a pub and uh, got a few drinks in us, and there of us well up like that. Because we've got this telly programme, I've not even started filming it yet. And I says to him, see if he's standards phone, he, he, would you do your standards? <laughs> <laughs> and he's like, ah, nah. And I, he says, what about you, you love Coronation Street, would you do Corey? I went, now that I've got this. <laughs> <laughs> Six weeks later, canned. <laughs> I'm writing to Corey, could you do it? Maybe a couple of quick uh, questions from the floor, but one thing I just want to ask on the back of what you, uh, what you said about uh, writing there, if someone is sitting out there with a script at the moment and they've been working with a pal like you guys were, and or, you know, you've all at different stages done, Tell me, um, or tell them rather, tell the audience what the um, what the first step is. Because it's one thing getting a, a, a script on a commissioner's desk. Yeah. There's steps in between that. Ken, right. Ken stop! No. <laughs> no, the, the, the key to any script is get somebody as close as to the desk as you can possibly get to read it. So you need to, you need to work out. A, it's not a strategy as such. It's just that you you don't want to be seen to be overhawking it because then your script gets really old really quick and gets dog-eared at the end. You just need to work out who's in, who's in a position to help you and just pursue them. Um, and that can be, that doesn't need to be somebody in huge power, it just needs to be somebody in the office. I mean, everybody's got a different way of doing it. I mean, our, our um, road, our path was odd. You know, it, was, it, was, it wasn't about pursuit in any way. Sometimes, but not, not often. But I know guys who, the guy who's made um, whiskey galore, Oh, aye. I mean, that was 10 years in the making. That's right, aye. You know, he, he had people cast in it, and then they weren't cast. Mm. He, he wanted us to write it, and then we weren't writing it, and bits and bobs, and eventually it gets made. I've not seen it, I don't know anything about the film. It comes out next week, I think. Um, but he never gave up, and he kept getting it on people's desks, and eventually somebody took him up on it. But if, you'd, if you've written a script, and you're sitting in a, a nice, tidy script, you maybe want to get a hold of somebody who's in the business, who's had scripts produced, to cast an eye over it, if you can possibly convince them to the, do the it. Other, sorry, sorry the, the other thing uh, I found really interesting with the South Park guys um, said, and I, I think this is mental, they, they, mm -hmm. sub, they say you submit the script flawed, which, which you, kind of makes sense because mm -hmm. that person's got to take a position on the other side of the desk. And if they'd say, oh, everything's fine, then they, they're out of a job effectively. And they did when they did uh, Team America, is that what it was called? Yeah, yeah. They, they wanted the puppets to uh, piss on each other, <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and so they submitted the script with the puppets shitting on each other, and the studio went, what? You can't do that? And they went, okay, 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 we'll have them peeing on each other. They went, right, okay, that's fine. So they got what they wanted, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that, and that is, you know, so... Um, yeah, we, we, the, whole, the first episode of Still Game, everybody was shitting on each other. <laughs> <laughs> right, Michael, you know, just The Copra Vagia years. <laughs> the thing is, as well, is there's an awful lot 
and, and you know, <laughs> you look at BAFTA sites, they've always got advice for things like that. There's writers' rooms, there's an awful lot of stuff out there that's supposed to encourage new writers. Send it to them. The other thing to do in Scotland is to look up filmbang.com, right? And Filmbang has got uh, the name and address of every single production company in Scotland. See a teleprogram you like and you think my show's a bit like that program, see you made it, send it to them. That, honestly, that's the best advice you do. Send it to them and say to that. We, even I, and I've got nothing to do with the writing, I get sent scripts for, from people for Still Game saying, oh, I've written a script for Still Game, will you have a look at it? And I instantly write back and go, no, it's got nothing to do with me and I never want to be accused of taking an idea and it's got nothing to do with me. Don't send us that kind of stuff. What you need to do is have your own voice and write your own things. But there are a lot of schemes out there which look for stuff and if you've got a good talent because comedy is so difficult if you've got a genuinely fully talent someone will recognize it or you do what limmy did and just keep making it on your own uh, mm. online uh, for free until someone says oh we'll take that as a series the other thing is don't be scared to flex if you if you think it's brilliant and it, it couldn't be cut down you, you would be wrong you sometimes even it goes against the grain if they tell you to cut bits cut it the first thing you get made get it made at all costs it's, it's terrible to say that, but that's, that's it. That, you're never going to get there unless, as Paul said, these other people have a hand in it. Um, then you can get to be Johnny Big Boys and do what you like later on. Yeah. But in the, in the beginning, you've got to really kind of flex a, a, a considerable deal because everybody's got to have their reason for being It's battles and wars, isn't it? It's battles yeah. and wars. Yeah. Just wee concessions here and there. I mean, the, the option that you guys have that I didn't when I started out in the mid-90s was that you can make a version of it online. And it's a bit like what Ricky Gervais did with The Office. Um, when he wrote The Office, uh, it didn't look great on paper because it was a lot about the looks and the, you know, the little subtle stuff that maybe wasn't on the page or certainly in the words. But he got money, I think, from some, I can't remember what the scheme was, but he made a 10-minute version of The Office and he made it exactly the way he wanted to. And obviously he had a bit more money than someone making it on an iPhone, but the point was that he had creative control. So that 10 minutes looked exactly like he wanted The Office to look like and it clearly worked for that 10 minutes. And if you can find a way like I say, because it's an option you guys have that we never did, of, because at that point you have creative control. I mean, it's an unfortunate equation of the industry is uh, the, the more money, the, the, uh, the further it is in, this, in the process, the less control you have over it, because it will be some exec overlooking it. You have ultimate creative control when you've written the thing, and if you can film a version of it and put it online, it will get found. I mean, as much as you think the, in the internet is this big massive soup, the good stuff does float to the top and someone will find it. If you, if you have access to that sort of technology. As an actor, um, when I left drama school, we were given rules what to do if you went for an audition and you had to do this, you had to do this, you had to do this, and you would look like a fool if you didn't do this, you would look unprofessional if you didn't do this, you would look as if you, know, you, you didn't know what you were doing. And, and because we've been told and, ev and you, everybody was going to obey those rules, I decided to not do any of the things that yeah. I was told that I had to do. And it, one, of the things, <laughs> one of the things he said was, never take props, never take costume, never. And it was an open edition at the comedy unit and my friend's granny had just died, woman. And <laughs> I went into our, our granny's drawer and our granny was a big woman. And I found the biggest <laughs> pair of pants I'd ever seen in my life. I mean, I couldn't believe that they existed. And I took them to the audition and I did a piece round these pants. And I remember it was a Colin piece Gilbert. A piece. Not an information thing, but like I used that and I made that part of the whole thing. And I remember afterwards he said, because no one else had done that, it made me stand out and they called me back. And it was from that, I ended up getting lots of retelling things and then pulp video. But uh, so th that's the thing to be careful. Basically, of. you're looking for a deep granny. A deep granny and big pants. But don't always obey the rules that they tell you to do. Be different, be individual, and make yourself stand out.
the birth of eyes are draining. Do we have time for, <laughs> for one more question? Yes. Thank you. Um, I've just got a wee question for Sandy Van Ford. I've just started working in radio, but it's kind of presenting work, and I love that, but I would love to get into radio drama. I just don't have a clue how to go about it. How did you guys crack into it? Well, do you write or perform? Or perform, like as, as, as an actor. Well, I, 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 I kind of got it by accident. That's where I sort of did most of my beginning work. I, do a lot of different, I used to do a lot of different voices for football programmes and stuff like that. And uh, I think it was Alan Depolette. You, know, you can't say his name three times or he'll turn up. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, he just had a tip for me and he, he managed to shove me into this Radio 2 thing. And so I ended up then right in at the deep end. They, they said to me one day, I was doing a show called The Weekending. Mm -hmm. And they said, uh, who can do Chris Eubank? And there were many of us could do Chris Eubank. And he just said to me, you, you do the end titles as Chris Eubank. And I'm, you're sitting in the... And I'm listening after me. And I, and I, and I started... <laughs> <laughs> it was just, I was, and I'd done the whole thing, and my face was scarlet as it is, I know. And these other people were sitting going, oh, the balls in this guy being brave enough to do it. It's sometimes accidental. But again, it's about writing and p p putting a link to your demo, mm -hmm. different things that you've done or reading different pieces. There's no, there's no correct or wrong answer here to get on to know, radio, radio drama, but it's fucking great fun. It's a riot, in it? I know, it was a bit of a long, drawn-up process for me, because I started out as a radio presenter, who then got into writing, who then... I got commissioned uh, to, to, to make a sketch show for Radio Scotland, and me and my mate Donny just did the voices, because it was cheaper. Me, Donny was an actor, and I wasn't, and I didn't think I was at the time. Um, so I sort of... I thought I was a kiddie-on actor, but actually I was. I was doing, I was doing act comedy acting, which is acting. Um, so, I mean, it's, it was a bit accidental for me, so it's like, you know... That's not great advice for you to get from where you are. Do you, to do you have an agent? Um, I used to, but I've been, I feel like I've been out of the game for so long. Okay. I'm like, what do you do? Who well, do you, you need to? But you need to reintroduce yourself to the game, yeah. basically. That you, you need people. You need to send people, people, because people are lazy as well. It, depend, it depends. It depends what you're looking for. If you're looking for drama, it's people like Bruce Young at BBC, who does have open editions uh, now and again for people. Uh, so you can, you know, get a couple of pieces together and be prepared, and just again persistence. Get in touch with people with Bruce Young, uh, Kirsty Williams, and and Kirsty's very very open to new people as well. And can I just say that. on that, don't go and try and do what you think is a radio four radio yeah. four. Do your own voice, your own accent, because just that's what I mean. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I'm presenting the the traffic and travel, I'll do it as Chris Eubank. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll get the sack, the clay, do, do, you piece, do you have a piece that you would like? You think would be a good showcase for you, or could you write something for yourself even? Um, I probably could write something for myself. I love well, the kind well, of comedy that. aspect. I mean, because the thing is, so. is that you might even just discover that you're, you know, you can you can write as well. I've always thought that if you can improvise, you are writing anyway. You're just not formally writing it down. Mm. So um, it might be worth even having a go at that, um, and then that becomes part of the process, and then you're, you're actually doing it for yourself. And then you can develop that way. Because I always think sometimes it's just like a game of luck, isn't it? It is who you know sometimes, or just getting that wee lucky break or someone to notice. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I played the brown card. You don't have that, but. Um, <laughs> uh, Can't really but see I mean, it back to that. It's true. It's true. No, no, I, I, you could go to Tannerif and <laughs> change, change it into Kobinder. Um, For radio? Yes. <laughs> it's no it's bother. It's absolutely no bother whatsoever. Just, 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 just record too long for shelf. <laughs> Write a play called Too Long for Shelf. <laughs> 28 minutes. <laughs> Folks, we're going to have to draw a line under it there. We're, we're, we've, we've bust the embargo. We're over time. Um, but uh, I would like you all to join me in thanking Paul Riley, Ford Kiernan, Sanjeev Kohli, Michael Hines, Gavin Mitchell, Mark Cox and Jane McCarry for an absolutely brilliant <laughs> afternoon.
Before everyone disappears, um, I have to tell you that BAFTA Scotland has a student and career starter membership package available. Student is £35 and career starter is £50. Uh, this gets you access to weekly screenings in Glasgow and Edinburgh, TV previews, craft masterclasses, events, networking and for recent media graduates and newcomers, newcomers the monthly career close-up scheme. Uh, where up to 20 <laughs> individuals can get direct access to some of the industry's best talent. Also watch this space, this space, um, for the newly launched BAFTA Scotland new initiative uh, later this year. I assume that's the BAFTA Scotland website. There are networking drinks right now after this in the Terrace Bar. I have been told to warn you all though that spaces are limited. So cue the stampede. Thanks very much, folks. Uh, Paul English, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Thank you very much, Paul. Yeah. Radio Mark.